1: The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Glad to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show takes off this hour. Hey, thanks a lot for taking the time to be here uh, for this special edition episode. As most of you are aware, we are trying to ramp up The infrastructure getting ready to present scale as a remote attendee only conference. And of course, we need to test that infrastructure. I am proud to say that 100 percent of the infrastructure is being run on open source uh, free software. And so all of the presenters are going to be connecting video solutions over free and open source software using Matrix bundled with Jitsi for that we have a open irc room that anybody can join and uh, the website and all of the assets have been built by people in the community using open source tools and so a huge thank you to Kapavic, to jt um to all of the people uh greg and uh, computer kid all of those that have showed up and and offered to help build out this infrastructure and a huge thanks to all of you that emailed into the show and signed up as moderators and And helped with all of the infrastructure that we needed. A big thank you to all of that and thank you to you listening to this program live to help us uh, stress test the infrastructure. We appreciate it so uh starting out this hour, I want to talk about a great application that i've actually been using for years to to do this show, and that is Avid Mux. Sometimes in the Linux community, we have software projects that do things far better than any proprietary tool could, and oftentimes they solve a problem that we don't really even necessarily have a proprietary tool to solve. AvidMux very much uh, fits that description in that it is a video editor. It is a free video editor, but it is designed for one purpose, and that is a lean, mean cutting machine. It is for simple cutting and filtering and encoding. Now, the nice thing and the reason that I use it literally every week to publish a show is oftentimes what you need in a video editor is simply to just chop the beginning and the end off, and we're going to leave what's in the middle. The problem is with most nonlinear video editors, it requires you to re-encode that file. It ingests the video into what's known as an intermediary Kodak, and the idea is that we have certain, there are special frames inside of a video that are tracked, and the computer keeps track of where these special keyframes are, and... Uh, indexes the entire video file and so that's how when you grab your playhead and drag it to a particular spot on the video editing there's a lower resolution part of the video that you're actually editing in and then when you're done it commits all of those changes and renders out a full resolution file uh, where all the markers are that you marked on that low resolution files and working off of this mezzanine file well what avid mux allows you to do is make a choice on where you'd like to cut a file up. But instead of re-encoding that entire video, it simply just chops off the ends and saves the center portion of the file as a new file. And so it doesn't go through the entire re-encoding process. And now for that to work of course you have to be going from one codac to the same so if you ingest mp4 you have to use mp4 if you use mkv you have to use mkv of course if you decide you want to uh, you want to transcode of course you have that option but then you are going to sit and wait for the file to encode so when we get off the air i have an obs file that you know it doesn't exactly i don't push the record button at exactly the same time every single week. And so there is a manual process of trimming that file. Then from there, it's pretty automated to get the file out. But AvidMux cuts the time down that we need to edit that file from what would ordinarily take five, maybe 10 minutes, even on a powerful machine, down to about three seconds. And so AvidMux is, I could not go back to living without it. It is absolutely fantastic. It supports a ton of file types, AVI, DVD, MPEG, MP4, ASF, uh, a variety of codecs tasks can be automated using projects and job queues, so you have the ability to set it up in such a way that uh it will automatically start processing files and there's there 's actually two g u i windows one is the main editing video and the other is that automated tasks window uh it 's available for linux b s d mac os windows it's published under the GPL license, so it's an open source program that you can run literally on any platform you want to. And it has my huge recommendation. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can find more at avidmux.sourceforge.net. Avidmux, the lean, mean video editing cutting machine. Coming up later in this hour, we are going to have Rohan Carmandy. He is the host of the I.O. podcast, and we're going to be diving in to Home Assistant. We've talked about home automation before. We've not spent a lot of time on open source hubs. I've made references to trying uh, Home Assistant, and I've played with it a little bit, but I have not dug in to the level that this guy has. And so it's going to be very interesting to get him on, and we'll find out what all of his secrets are to getting open source uh, home automation hub up and running. In the news this week, Lenovo has decided that more than 250 million computers are sold with a net market share report of 2.8%, roughly 7.2 million users, and these people are using Linux. Once thought of as a niche IT crowd, the user base of data scientists, developer, application engineers, scientists is growing and stepping into the sought-after roles across multiple industries and becoming essential within their computers. So Lenovo is excited to announce that they are moving to certify full workstation portfolios for top Linux distributions from Ubuntu and Red Hat for every model and every configuration. This is huge. I, I have used a ThinkPad since, probably since I was in eighth grade. I, I started with the IBM ThinkPad 7, uh, 700. I went to the 701C, 755C. Um, I, and and all the way down the line, I purchased ThinkPads because it was drilled into me actually by my dad, who had also purchased ThinkPads since the day they started making them, um, that they are some of the most robust, reliable computers out there. Now, in the past few years, there have been other manufacturers certainly that have come up and are making equally good, if not in some cases, superior computers in some ways, um, notable exceptions. Or notable examples of that, I should say, would be something like the System76 LeMur. I had a a client that purchased a System76 Galago. He had a uh, Galago Pro, and he had that computer for six, seven years, and it finally died, and he decided to replace it with a major market uh, computer and purchased one from one of the big-name manufacturers. That computer barely lasted a year and physically broke down on him. Now, this is a guy that takes very good care of his stuff. I mean, he literally, it goes in a bag, to the office, out of the bag, on the desk, back into the bag, home, on the office desk at home. I mean, that's it. That's its life. Uh, he does not abuse that thing at all. And the, the big brand box one fell apart, System76 one, to the to my, to best of my knowledge, is still working. Um, I have had such good luck with most manufacturers of computers it really has become difficult to choose which brand to go with and every manufacturer has their own possess if you're looking for lightweight well built thunderbolt and and sex appeal uh it's the Dell XPS almost always um their precision line too is essentially looks like the XPS but has a desktop uh desktop components inside of it it's an absolutely fantastic laptop again born out of the box to run Linux because Dell has that commitment. System76 has been making computers since the day they started making computers born to run Linux. And of course, the quality of those computers has continually advanced and you can trust when you're purchasing a good computer from them that it is a true community effort. These are people that eat, live, breathe and sleep Linux to the point that now they are developing their own custom Linux distribution that is providing advantages not found in any other Linux distribution. And so System 76 definitely ranks up there as as a good solid choice for for a place to purchase a computer if you're looking to run Linux. So to add Lenovo to this list is is mind-blowing to me for a number of reasons. First of all, I need a computer that I can that can take a beating, a physical beating because you know, I am in the field often. I am up on ladders, I'm sitting up on racks. Oftentimes, uh, laptops fall or they get bumped or something gets spilt on them, whatever. The fact that Lenovo places a, a a rubber sealant, essentially, under the keyboard so that when liquid is poured into the keyboard, there are drain ports that actually run it around the motherboard and over all of the components and out the sides of the computer so you don't have to worry uh, as much, anyway, about damaging the computer, that's a big deal to me. The fact that all of their computers are not made to look pretty, are not going to ding They're not going to dent. They're a very robust, hard, uh, durable plastic. It means my wristwatch scraping against it doesn't matter. It means that if something gets bumped or or banged, it's not going to leave a dent or a scratch or a mark. Um, They're just really well-built computers. Additionally, consider this. Red Hat, owned by IBM now, formerly IBM being the former manufacturer of the ThinkPad and the original creator of the ThinkPad, Red Hat Almost exclusively uses ThinkPad. I walk through Red Hat, and as I often do when I walk through businesses, how many of these people are using Windows? How many of these people are using Mac? How many of these people are using Linux? Pleasantly surprised as I walked through the halls of Red Hat to find that everybody was using Linux. Everybody was using either Red Hat or Fedora, a couple of Ubuntu machines. And that was really surprising to me that a multi billion dollar company as big as Red Hat still was eating their own dog food. That was pretty incredible. But what you notice is that they're all running on ThinkPads. Now, that was an interesting choice to me because at that time and up until this article came out, Lenovo didn't really have any official support for Linux. And so if you have a problem with your hardware or something doesn't mesh right, it's on that even if they're a multibillion-dollar company. It's on you to start swapping out Wi-Fi cards, swapping out Bluetooth cards, whatever you have to do. Now, to Lenovo's credit, long before they've made this commitment to Linux openly and publicly— I purchased my X1 Carbon, and I would tell you that to date, my sixth generation X1 Carbon is the best laptop I have ever owned in my entire life, bar none. I wish it had a wired Ethernet, Jack, but aside from that, it is the best laptop I have ever owned. I will never get rid of it. I love that laptop. And part of my love for that laptop started the day I pulled it out of the box and turned it on, and Linux wouldn't work on it and it wouldn't go into standby right, and just a bunch of things were not working right. Wi-Fi would come disconnected or wouldn't find the Wi-Fi card, and it's just, it was a nightmare. And I thought, man, i you know, I always buy Lenovo because I thought it's usually a pretty easy process to get Linux up and running. And I started Googling some of the problems, and somebody on the Internet said, oh, you reboot into the BIOS and make sure to select Linux as the operating system. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of selecting an operating system in the BIOS. That's kind of weird, but sure enough, I reboot and in the BIOS installed operating system, Microsoft Windows, and you tap on that. And one of the other choices is Linux. Well, I'm not exactly sure what this setting is going to do, but I change it and instantaneously the computer boots up, goes into standby perfectly every time, comes out perfectly every time. Uh, all of the Wi-Fi starts working. Bluetooth works flat fantastically. Audio works fantastically. It was like that machine was born to run Linux. It was clear to me that somebody at Lenovo spent some serious time making absolutely sure that every little component in that laptop was designed to work with Windows. It's further clear to me that they eventually reached a point where they said to themselves self here's the things the configuration parameters that we have to have and the switches and the, the things that we have to have in place for windows to work properly and here's the things that we have to have in place for linux to work properly and at that point they had a choice their choice was to just ship it as a windows computer because that's where 98 percent of the people that use those laptops come from and anybody that wants to hack and get linux to work on it well you know what let the community figure that out. They're smart guys. They'll probably figure it out. We have a good enough reputation of selling Windows computers and and, and and good enough hardware that people can hack to get Linux on it. Shouldn't be a problem. Lenovo chose not to go that route. Lenovo chose to spend the time and take their engineers and have them figure out specifically why Linux wasn't working and encode into the BIOS of the computer with a computer that shipped not with Linux, with no open support for Linux, but yet they have an option in the BIOS to... Reconfigure the computer so that it works flawlessly with Linux, and indeed, it winds up being one of the best computers I've ever had in my life. That, to me, is enough to say Lenovo should be doing more. And so as IBM purchases Red Hat and all of a sudden now they have this, you know, larger infrastructure and larger budget, it comes as no surprise to me. That Lenovo is finally poked and somebody says to them, hey, Lenovo, you've been doing this, you've been doing the good work, everything works, why don't you just put it on your website and make make it public, go on record and say, hey, these computers work with Linux and we're going to have them work with Linux. And that's exactly what they're doing. And as Lenovo points out in their article where they announce this in their press release, the fact is that we used to joke about the year of the Linux desktop because we as computer enthusiasts, we as technology uh, enthusiasts and people who are passionate about this stuff wanted to see a computer that I could just purchase on the internet that I could just buy in a store and I would be able to just use Linux with it and they've looked at it and they said listen data scientists developers application engineers scientists this market is growing and these people want a very specific operating system now if you combine some of the stories that we've talked about over the past few weeks then you know that Microsoft has spent a considerable amount of time and considerable amount of effort trying to perfect WSL for Windows because they want to draw those people in, and so as Lenovo is looking at it from a hardware perspective, well, what do we need to do now? They could certainly rely on Windows to try to suck people from the Linux infrastructure ecosystem in to WSL and have them do their work there, but if you go on Reddit. Or if you go on the, anywhere on the Internet and just look at what people are saying, what the real feedback is to WSL, 95% of people say, if I had to use Windows, it's better than nothing. But if I had my choice between a raw stock Linux system and WSL, I'm going to go with a raw stock Linux system. There's a couple of exceptions, but that's the vast majority of people. And so Lenovo, again, they have a choice. They could just wait it out. And Microsoft is an, undoubtedly is going to improve WSL to the point that the experience is going to equal that or maybe even exceed what you can get on a raw Linux distribution from a developer application developer standpoint. This is what Microsoft is putting money into. And Lenovo can see this. I can see this. Everybody can see this. And again, they're choosing to take a stand to say, hey, we want to offer a second operating system option on our hardware products. And I I can't quite wrap my head around how big it is that we have all of these manufacturers that are finally starting to get it, that are finally starting to get that when you're a person that wants to get real work done, you don't have the luxury, you don't have the time to sit there and say, well, I'm running my business and I need to be able to do that on Linux because I need these tools, but I'm going to order this computer from this big name manufacturer and I'll just pray and hope that when this computer gets here, I will have a good experience on it. Lenovo is going to make sure that you have a good experience on it. And so I just have to say thank you, Lenovo, to what you've done. As many of you know, um, we've been working on getting the infrastructure up for self. And as part of that, I've sat down with the leaders of self as well as the people that have come from all different communities to say, how can we pitch in? And I have said, I am interested in hearing all ideas, but at the end of the day, if I'm going to put my name on something, and as the media director of self, that's my name on something, I want it to be open source, or at least want to try to use Linux and open source to accomplish doing a remote conference before we bail to something like Zoom, uh, and and if we can make the, that technology work, Then we owe it to the community to make to give that a shot. And if it doesn't work, then we can go back to the community and say, hey, we tried to do it the open source way. We tried to use the tools that were here and we couldn't make it work because and then give the reasons why. And let that be an opportunity for for people in the community to step up and fix the infrastructure or fix the tools that aren't working. And as we did that, we quickly settled on Matrix. The reality of Matrix is this. If you're looking for a future proof, decentralized communication platform that has a low barrier to entry and will allow people from all over the place, no matter what it is they're trying to uh, no matter what their experience level is. To be able to interact, then Matrix is your solution. Additionally, because it's open source, because it is decentralized, and because there are so many moving components, it's possible to configure Matrix to do pretty much anything you want to do. And so by default, it has it's just a server, and you need a chat client to connect into Matrix. So I would kind of equate it to the the IRC of 2020. And they have a, web, a fantastic web client called Riot. And so we paired Riot with our Matrix server and and started to experiment with what we could do with this. And it turns out we can embed Jitsi right into Matrix. And so we have the ability to do audio calls. We have the ability to do video calls. We have the ability to do text chat. Additionally, encryption is there by default because of the, uh, because of the way that... Um, that matrix can share other instances. You have the ability to join that federated uh, portion of matrix and have people that have matrix accounts on other, uh, on other servers interact with your community. We've just been really impressed with what matrix can do. And now there is an update to matrix and from their site quote, as many of you know, now a few of us have been working since mid December on experimenting with running matrix in a peer to peer architecture one where the user has absolute autonomy and ownership of their conversations. Because the only place in their conversation exists is on the device that they own. In some ways, this is the logical goal of Matrix. Our aim has always been to empower users to have full control over their communications rather than beholden to any given service provider. In a peer-to-peer network world, we would completely return power over secure communications to the people. And this is the goal that they are now skating towards and working towards. And I'm happy to see this because I am at a point now where... I communicate uh, with just gen- the general public, just general people that are looking to get a hold of me. It just seems like they wind up on Telegram uh, for family stuff. I'm using a, a separate service. I, I I've played with Signal. I've played with a uh, Slack. I've played with Microsoft Teams. I've played with Discord. I've played with Mattermost. I've played with Rocket Chat. We've tried all of these communication platforms And what you find is all of them have their advantages and all of them have their disadvantages. And so what we're looking at, and we're trying this now with self and with Linux Delta is can we can we can we can we center around matrix and can we tie other things into matrix? And we've even started looking at that from UltraSpeed speed technologies. And how can we tie that into our customer chat service so that when people go to our our website and want to chat with a the technician, they have the opportunity to do that right on the website. But on the back end, we only have to be in one place. We only have to be on one platform and that allows us um, that allows us to to have that kind of communication without having to go back and and, and monitor a number of different platforms. So huge. Thanks to the matrix community and the people who have made this such a fantastic solution. Obviously there is some work to go. Obviously it has not been tested at the kind of scale that, uh, that discord and some of the, the other more mature projects, uh, have, um, ...have been used at, but I believe that this is the future of open communication, open and decentralized communication. I think that um, having used XMPP, having used IRC, having seen what other options are out there, I think that this is one of our best choices. And so, um, happy, very happy to be using Matrix to support this year's Southeast Linux Fest. Hey, before we go any further, I need to welcome in our guest this hour. It is Rohan Carmandy. Now, again... I have my own views on home automation and I've thus far really tried to stay away from any sort of central hub, Um, just using it kind of as an auxiliary device, mostly because if the central hub ever failed, I didn't want to be locked out of all of my automation stuff. Well, As open source and Linux often does, they are now starting to have really robust solutions that don't compromise on the experience, don't compromise on the quality. It's something that you would find off of the Internet or that you could order. You would see this at a big box store if big box stores were interested in promoting technology that people owned. It is Hassio, and there's a fascinating amount of stuff that you can do with Home Assistant, but Don't take my word for it. Take Rohan Carmandy's word for it because he's the guy that does the podcast about home assistance. So, Rohan, without further ado, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Welcome into the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for taking the time to be here. So we'll start with this. Um, Tell me what a smart home hub is and why that's beneficial as opposed to just downloading the individual apps for all of uh, all of my devices.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, a hard, smart home hub is essentially a device or soft piece of software, more or less. Sometimes there's some hardware associated with it as well, but it's essentially a place where that combines all of your smart home devices. So, as an example, I might uh, I might add my Amazon Echo devices. I might have a smart doorbell or or whatever variety of sensors and uh, Internet of Things devices uh, your smart home may consist of. So the idea here is how do I actually congregate all of these pieces into one platform? Now, you you actually brought up a great point about having these different uh, apps that you have on your phone. So for example, uh, you might have a Ring doorbell as well as a Belkin Wemo switch. So now that's two different apps. Now, the problem is what happens when you get eight or 10 or more different products. Um, each of them has a different app and none of them really talk to each other. Um, the neat thing about having a hub is you can you can actually enable automations across all of these different uh, different devices. So as an example, it might say, I, I mean, this might be a sillier example, but somebody rings a doorbell. So because of that um Turn the lights on and send me a notification on my phone. Normally, those three things might not talk to each other. But in a case like this, uh, where, where you do have a hub, um, that can kind of be the brain of uh, of the
1: house. Talk to me a little bit about the the uh, where we are with Home Assistant. So to to recap for those that may not be aware, Home Assistant started as as kind of a Python script. Eventually they had a full-on installer script, then they went to in um and then to the this this CLI-based thing that you had to run in order to turn a box into a HassIO and now they have HassIO which they have called IO. And it is a, it is a, my understanding is that it is a complete rework from the ground up to design a desi- device specifically for ha- home automation in where everything resides in a single YAML file.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's actually come a little bit from there as well. So, and, and you're totally right. I mean, before it was just a collection of scripts with the, with, you know, somewhat of a GUI slapped on and you really needed to be, very technical or or almost a developer to be able to use it um and and across and and i've been using it for a couple of years now and basically where they've gone with it is uh the, the the core development team uh who is a who is phenomenal they do all of this stuff uh you know mostly free of charge now now there's uh a, an element of it too that uh, that el- enables cloud connectivity and such which does have a cost to it but uh, and, and that's kind of how they feed it back into the system so that they can sustain it um, but but this group of folks has basically gotten together and and started out with one guy Paulus building out this tool and uh, it just blew up and and I think I was uh, in, in one of his uh, talks that he was doing he was actually talking about how the top 10 projects on GitHub was like, you know, everything was like Facebook by Facebook and Google and Microsoft. And then there's Paulus, right? Which is kind of cool. So, so it kind of blew up in the open source uh, community as well as the home automation community. Uh, So for a lot of people that want to do this at home without having to pay subscription fees or not wanting to do things uh, in the cloud so they can have it locally here. So, uh, but where they're going with this is actually really cool too which is now you know you don't necessarily need to be a developer or, or even technical at all uh, to some extent to to do some basic automations right so which is which I think is actually really cool and, and that gets me really excited for the platform um, but at the end of the day, like you said, it is, it is a piece of software. So, you know, and then, and then there's, you know, how do we pick hardware for it? What do you want to put it on? And, and the answer is really almost anything. Right. So.
1: There is the ability to, to configure home assistant, um, just by using this YAML file. You can go in there and they have the templated examples of how to control Mm -hmm. an individual device. In fact, when home IO first boots up, it tries to auto discover things that it would be able to control right out of the box, which is fantastic. Um, but there is, a, there is a level of, of technical um, you know, incantation almost that it looks like if, if you're a user that you're not used to the in-depth technical stuff. And actually installing Home Assistant is not that difficult. You simply download the image, you drop it onto an SD card, you plug it into your Raspberry Pi and wait a couple of minutes and Home Assistant will boot up, it will go out to the internet, it will try and find an update, it will update itself, it will bring itself up as a web UI, and you can access it at hasio.local. Um, a, a lot of the a lot of the work has been taken out, and they've they've made a lot of strides. But at the same time, you have this YAML file that has what looks like programming code, and it can be a little off-putting. So, to a mm-hmm. new user, somebody who doesn't understand YAML, who's maybe never done anything with text configs, should they be worried? Should they feel like this is a complicated thing? They're going to have a difficult time wrapping their head around?
0: No. So. And 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 this is actually one of the big reasons. And again, like I said back in the day when I when I was choosing this platform, uh, this is actually one of the big reasons I chose Home Assistant is because YAML is actually really simple to pick up. But again, today where where the entire platform is is less around YAML and more around using that UI. Uh, so they've really bolstered up the the functionality and the user interface to enable the use of, so so, so that, sorry, so that you don't need to use YAML as much. There might still be some instances where you do need to use it, for, for, but for the most part, they've actually done a pretty decent job uh, of uh, most of your common use cases that you would want to do anyways, uh, for the most part, are are being driven by the user interface. And that includes moving certain features like adding integrations. So I want to add ring or I want to add nest or w- whatever that is uh these devices have also like even adding those devices now you don't really need to do much with the with yaml itself so which is in my opinion you know strides uh from where it was before and and it's it's a really 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 good uh uh direction that they're taking
1: they uh, yeah, uh my understanding is Going forward, the Haas.io team plans to integrate even more UI uh, configuration, and so eventually they're going to get to the point where even the stuff that you're doing in YAML now will be uh, configuration buttons.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right.
1: Talk a little bit about some of the components that you have working with HASS.io. I know a lot of people um, are looking to automate lights, some are looking to automate security systems, some are looking to automate camera systems. Obviously HASS.io being a central hub has the ability to do that, what kind of products have you found work out of the box with HASS.io? And uh, I guess I would throw this stipulation. Uh, can you specify any devices that didn't require you to use the factory app or require some sort of an Internet connection back to the factory service? I know some of the Wemos switches I've set up, um, they're fantastic, mm-hmm. but they do require you to, in order to even get them onto the Wi-Fi network, you must install their app and connect to it and, and do all of those kinds of things. What have you found?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, for the most part, uh, smart devices do require some sort of connectivity for, for the most part. Right. Um, and and even though the uh, ho- home assistant might actually discover some of these devices, a lot of them would, again, need to be on uh, on the wireless network or, or the wired network uh, for it to discover it. Uh, a couple of other options are there are other protocols that aren't actually Wi-Fi based. Um, for example, ZigBee and Z-Wave. Uh, those are two very common uh, protocols. And those ones, again, it's, it's more about being able to... And, and the point of... Sorry, the point of that is so that they don't necessarily need to be using Wi-Fi, right? So, that, uh, so these kind of devices, uh, as an example, I have some door sensors that run ZigBee. So for me, my process for doing that is I go in a Home Assistant, I say, hey, uh, scan for devices. And then depending on the device, there may be a, like a pair button or something like that where I have to press that. Uh, and boom, it's on It's on Home Assistant. Uh, outside of that, a lot of the devices you have today, if they're already on the network and they have some sort of discovery uh, protocol enabled, then it just kind of finds it. And, and Wemo, like you said, is a great example of that, right? Where... Pre-having Home Assistant, I actually had uh, some Wemo switches, and uh, my Home Assistant just straight up discovered those, and uh, I just added it in that way.
1: I My next question is kind of a two-part question. First off, do you have any concerns about having smart devices on a network with access to the internet? And then a follow-up to that would be, between ZigBee and Z-Wave, which protocol do you prefer and why?
0: <laughs> okay, that's a that's a tough one. All right, let, let me let me answer the the first one first. I mean, um, actually, you know what? Sorry, I'm I'm going to go backwards here. I'm going to I'm going to do the second one first. So uh, between Zigbee and Z-Wave, so there are a lot of people that would prefer. So personally, I think Z-Wave is a um, superior protocol. So it is proprietary. It is um, it, it is pseudo controlled by you know I, I forget the name of the manufacturer. But at the same time, so Z-Wave Z- devices need to be compliant to a specific standard. But that comes with a really nice trade-off, which is because they're so uh, stringent in their requirements, that means things, for the most part, work the way they, you expect them to. Right? ZigBee, um, Zigbee is an open protocol, um, and, and it's up to you how you adopt it. Uh, they, there is a there is a um, set of rules that you have to follow but but again that's on depends on your implementation and how you interpret those rules um, so uh, you know in my experience I found Zigbee to be a little more wild wild west they do they do still all work fairly the same way um, but in in my house just just you know by virtue of it, uh, of, of me having these devices, I, I do have more Zigbee than I do uh, Z-Wave, just because again, open, open standard and and not proprietary means cheaper, typically, right? So, um, and then now, to kind of answer your first question, which was around security and and having these devices on Wi-Fi, so Zigbee and Z-Wave, again, it's important to understand that those are not on Wi-Fi, right? So they are wireless. They are uh, they do use very similar. Uh, frequencies but they're not wi-fi so they will not be attaching to your wireless router and such Um, so by way of security they are inherently a little more secure Um, not that there's not security challenges with those as well Um, but on the on the wi-fi front yeah absolutely there's always a concern um, with adding wi-fi devices and and even cloud-enabled devices and one of the things uh, we talk about quite often on, on my podcast is, you know, hey, here's the latest uh, company killing off their product, and now you just have these bricks that you paid money for, uh, and and essentially it's they push the kill they push the kill switch on their side, and that now basically kills the functionality. So there's there's some reasons there where you know cloud isn't always a good idea, but on top of that, to your point, security. Um, even, even if it is if, it's, if there's not a cloud requirement and there's a Wi-Fi requirement, there is still an inherent security uh, concern about that. So a lot of times what that might be is you might want to isolate that, that device and put it in its own little network um, or, or in a VLAN, if you want to call it that, um, and, and essentially only allow that access to either A, wherever it is it needs to go, or B, only to Home Assistant. So, um, you know, that's that's a good uh, security practice to have anyways. Um, a lot of people block it right off and say, these devices, uh, is, assuming there's no cloud for these kind of devices, essentially what we do is, uh, what a lot of people do is, they do just block it right off and say, you're not allowed to go on the internet, right? And, and a lot of times you can do that directly on your router. Um, so that. That is a that is definitely a security concern. I mean, you hear about about uh, people that actually try and take over these devices and then use those devices to launch attacks against other people or organizations or what have you. And and you you don't necessarily want to be a part of that. So, uh, and and or for your own safety, especially when it comes to cameras and things like that, especially if you have them inside the house, you don't. You may not necessarily want people, you know, or to expose yourself by uh, allowing somebody in and, and, and you know, looking inside your house and, and invading your privacy that way. So that that it, it is definitely, definitely a huge concern. And there are ways to mitigate it again. Um, and, and that's where the reliance off of cloud comes in or, or having reliance locally so that you can block those devices off from reaching out to the Internet.
1: What is your favorite Zigbee uh, light switch? So, my favorite
0: Zigbee light switch actually right now. So, I, I don't really have a Zigbee light switch, so that that's actually the only Z-Wave devices I have. Um so I can not I can't speak too much to those just because I don't I don't use those too much. Um but I mean most Zigbee light switches do work pretty similarly. I mean, they do have the same properties for the most part. Um so especially when it comes to ZigBee and Z-Wave, unless there's some aesthetically uh, pleasing function or anything like that, for the most part, they are pretty similar. Personally, I, I, uh, after I said all this about cloud, I do actually use the Lutron platform, uh, which uh, unfortunately is cloud-enabled, but uh, I just found it worked really well for me, and um uh, so, and and, and that's all, all the switches are off of uh, my Wi-Fi network as well. So that's that much less uh, interference as well that it's causing. And just because I do have a number of switches.
1: So I have to ask, I also have Lutron switches. I have the Lutron Radio Raw 2. Which, which Lutron switches specifically are you using? So I use the Cassetta
0: dimmer switches
1: uh, for the most part.
0: Okay. And then uh, they have... Uh, a non dimmer variant of it for that I use for uh, as an example. I have an outlet outside my house, and uh, and that's controlled by a switch. So I use it there. And for in uh, my bathrooms for the exhaust fans. I use uh, those ones as well. But for the most part, it's just those two.
1: So one of the reasons I was asking about Zigbee light switches, Rohan, was be- precisely because when I bought light switches. Mm-hmm. I started back at a time where I was starting with with um, with X10, yep. and what I what I you know what I quickly found as most people did when you tried to automate with X10 was it started to feel more like a bad high school science project than real home automation. <laughs> and yeah. when I start and and so I start you know I started working in industry and started looking at. We would do these conference rooms or we would work in these, you know, large uh, venues and they would have all sorts of automation. And every time I looked at the light brand, I noticed it was Lutron. And mm-hmm. so when I started looking into Lutron's lineup, I came across the Radio Raw 2 system. And there's a couple things I like about it. First off, uh, it, it does function as I believe that the, the, the CASA does. Uh, It it functions perfectly well, even if you're not connected to any any sort of smart device. So all the switches don't function as regular switches. If you pair them to a five-button scene controller, that five-button scene controller is going to work. Whether or not it's on the network, whether or not there's internet, whether or not it's tied to a smart hub, and so it allows a tremendous amount of flexibility and independent operation. And I valued that. The problem, yeah. of course, is those switches cost. I think the Casa ones are like 60, 70 bucks. I think the Radio Raw 2 ones are up in that $160, $170. So it yeah. becomes a pretty expensive venture to say that you're going to, 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 to replace all the light switches in your house. Now I've done that once. And, you know, what I what I look at is as I continue to as we continue to remodel our house, I continually ask myself the question, is this the system I I continue to want to buy in? But every time, Rohan, I look into what else is out there, I consistently come back to if you want high quality light controls, you go with Lutron. And it sounds like you've kind of had a similar experience.
0: Yeah, so I actually I'm I'm in the process right now. So so I mentioned earlier I have Zigbee uh, and Z Wave at home. So my my Z Wave devices are actually um, I forget what brand they are, um, but it's some offshoot of Linear. And uh, essentially those those devices a were too small. So for whatever reason, when when the uh, manufacturer or not the manufacturer when the builder built my house um, not a number of years ago, they they put in uh, wall boxes that were not really that deep so I, I actually had to get wall box extenders from Home Depot so that I could actually screw the switch in and uh, so that was a, that was a huge issue but then after that I also found uh, as, a, as a radio at the time I was also using smart things and and you know I just I just basically got tired of having to use these wall box extenders they, they kind of removed the, uh, or take away from the aesthetic of the house as well or, or of the wall. And, and I just found the Lutron ones look really clean. Uh, they, they fit. Um, and like I said, they're, they're not Wi-Fi based. So that means that they're not, uh, you know, they're not adding more interference into, into my airspace, if you want to call it that. Um, so all, all, all things considered, I, I really liked, uh, that platform and, and it's been pretty solid for me. So I've just kind of slowly been changing out those, uh, z-wave switches as well actually two of them died on me um probably a month and a half ago so it's just been you know i have two of them left and and i'm it's exactly like you said though it's it's there's they are very expensive so i'm kind of waiting for them to go on sale or something like that and then you know i'll find them wherever they are a number of uh you know box stores as well as online uh, vendors sell them so i try and I try and wait for that and and catch it at that. I can typically find it for about fifty five or sixty canadian um, and you know at that point i'm like okay I'm saving like five bucks, sure why not so.
1: yeah my my uh, my my money saver has been eBay. I try and watch for some used ones, and even then you know like you yeah. say it's still a big investment, but i you know to just to drive the point home. I have had Radio Raw two in my house since twenty fifteen. Before that I had Radio Raw one and I had that going back to two thousand eleven or two thousand twelve. I've never had a switch die. Not one single time. Um yeah. so yeah, it, I, I I just I can't say enough. I know there, I know it's a proprietary protocol. I know that um they're very expensive, but the truth is there's a lot of integration, um, with, with, with third party. And it seems like even though Lutron is proprietary, they do a very good job of working with the community to make sure that those standards are available. And, you know, my understanding is the control of the RadyRaw2 system, and I'm sure it's probably a similar protocol for, for the, for the CASA is mm-hmm. it, uh, they, it, it, just, it, it literally uses like a Telnet kind of a thing to, to be able to talk to those devices. Um, and so uh, and, and so it's open, and, and anybody can write for it, and they actually have documentation on how you can how you can control these things from any third party device, so I appreciate that. Rohan, I want to ask, do you have any experience with security systems or door access control systems? Not specifically
0: door access. Uh, I mean, I do have some uh, contact sensors for my door uh, or doors okay. and windows, and so I have a bit of experience with those guys, but not uh, not specifically um Security systems as a whole, though I have, I mean, in, in, you know, we used to have back in the day when I was a kid, we used to have like a monitored system. Um, but that not, nothing that I've, nothing that I've built myself, but I I do know a number of people that do build their own. Um, and, and
1: what door sensors do you use and why do you prefer those?
0: So I actually, I actually use the, uh, smart things, uh, sensors and I, I, honestly i prefer them just because i got them for pretty cheap a while ago um and and those are uh those are zigbee based so um they work with and and so when i started my home automation journey i actually started on smart things so i got them as a package and i found a couple extra stuff uh on sale so i was like great i'll pick it up whatever and and luckily because it is zigbee uh as i get rid of smart things i basically uh migrated all of these guys onto home assistant and uh it, it was pretty seamless just because again I, it is just using straight up zigbee uh which is as i mentioned it is it is an open protocol so it, it, there wasn't any uh issues that i had uh, particularly for for getting them to join
1: one of the things that i uh, well any of us that de- if we're married that deal with um, home home automation is the wife approval factor and one of the things that i've <laughs> yeah. come across time and time again is my wife and my kids rohan it's like i'm i'm a, i'm the odd man out they um <laughs> they're they're always looking for hardware ways to control things, and again, not yes. to just continually uh, plug Lutron, but you know, one of the things that I like about them is that they have those five button scene controllers, and so you have a physical button to change the lighting of a room. And my interest, of course, has always been to start controlling more devices, and I've tried to get some of those things to talk through Home Assistant with varying degrees of success. But I know that companies like Universal Remotes makes a small little like five inch touchscreen. Uh, remote Mm -hmm. control that you can mount on the wall i'm wondering do you have any experience with 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 control systems or or are you using just a a smartphone to do that what do you prefer and why
0: so so and and this is actually a huge so usability is actually uh, a big played a big factor into uh, a lot of the devices that i've chosen Um, and 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 to your point again uh, when at first i started out with this and it's like oh cool look at all this i can i can Use my phone to to turn on the lights and turn off the lights and so on, but even then I wanted it to be more practical than that, right? Um, and and at the time I was traveling, quite a bit where I'd be you know out of the house for a week or two weeks and things like that, and you know I'd want the lights to come on and come off, uh, turn off automatically and such. So primarily my house is driven by automations, uh, where you know x amount of time uh, or or at x time turn on the lights um, and you know, shut off certain lights at certain times, and then any other, um, any ways of augmenting that, let's call it. So for the for the most part, home assistant really is the brain to my house, and it kind of does everything. Uh, And then when I need to augment those things, or maybe, you know, turn up one of my kitchen lights to 100%, as an example, because I don't I don't always bump it to 100% because I don't necessarily need it at that. Uh, and, and that's where I use voice control. Um, I've got both Amazon Echoes and uh, a couple of Google Homes that I had before the girlfriend moved in the house with me. So we just, we combined all of those. And, and again, Home Assistant is the brain for those as well. So they all talk. It has the ability to talk to all of my devices as well. So um, yeah, I, I tried to stay away from, the, from either screens or things like that. It's just, for, for me, it was a less natural way of doing it. Um, again, mostly because of the, uh, ability. It's just even, 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 you know, forget, forget the people that live at home with you. It's also when I have a guest over or things like that. Uh, the very first time actually I had, um, for, for whatever reason, my, my light switches in my guest bathroom are actually outside the bathroom. Um, why? I don't know, but, uh, and they are, they're not even on the same wall. They're on an opposing wall. So nobody thinks to look there. And, you know, every single time I'd have somebody being like, uh, where's the light switch? Where's, you know, that kind of thing. And, and even though I had a Google home in there, it's, it's not always intuitive to say, Hey, turn on the lights here. Right. So I actually installed, uh, Lutron has these, uh, remotes, Uh, that that uh, you can have with the switches and they actually look exactly like the switch as well so i actually just put put a wall plate on those guys and 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 screwed it into the wall Um, so so again it's it's more than just from a usability perspective it's more than just myself um, and or my partner it's also you know she she also had played a big part into that as well (laughs) because she was like i hate this i don't want to use my phone for every time so on so forth so yeah, so, and, and that's actually why I didn't go with smart light bulbs. I went with smart switches instead as well.
1: Rohan, just uh, as we wind down, give me the lay of the land. What are some of your the, the your favorite things that you've done with Home Assistant? What are some of the, the things that um, you have found that you say, if somebody's getting into Home Assistant, here's the things you'd want to buy. Here are the things you want to know. Here's the easiest way to get up and running.
0: Yeah. So for for me, it was more when I started, it was more around security. Like I said, at the time, uh, I was traveling quite a bit and such. Uh, so it was around, again, those contact sensors, those um, and, and and also presence is very important as well. Right. Am I in the house? Am I not in the house? Um, and and again, things that I always, that I may forget, uh, my garage door opener is smart. So doing those kind of things and, and really it's the automations that bring all that together. Um, if you were starting out, I mean, I would probably say, um, figure out what it is you want. Um, are you looking more from a convenience perspective, a security perspective, what it is? And then based on that, you would do, uh, you would pick, uh, whatever devices. And again, think about the usability of it, not necessarily the, uh, I want to call it the shiny thing, right? It's like, Hey, this is cool, but uh, as cool as it may be, think about the practicality of it as well. Um I I think that's that's the biggest advice I can give. Um and that's you know, those are the biggest lessons that I learned as I as I went through this as well.
1: Rohan Karmandi, he is the guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. You should check out his podcast. It's haspodcast.io, dot io, the home assistant podcast. Now, Rohan, tell us about this. This is a show that you guys are doing and uh and and you and your co host are taking the time to go through individual devices week by week and saying, here's what happened, here's how we do monitoring, here's how this particular device works or that particular device works, and, uh, and you're doing this as an ongoing podcast for people that want to stay into the community because security is not only a moving target, what products are available, how will they work, all of those things are things that you're keeping your thumb very close to the pulse of trying to
0: yeah so so that it's primarily focused around the home assistant ecosystem so we actually in the first half of the show we cover um you know what's new in in the upcoming releases so our our, our podcast releases are actually aligned with uh home assistants official code drops or, or their official releases so the idea is when you when you're listening you're like oh hey all of these features are coming in that's cool okay i'm gonna have to talk uh, i'm gonna have to you know integrate that or or what have you uh and then the second half of the segment our second segment of the show is is really around uh we talk to a lot of users and 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 just community members and just about some of the cool things that they're doing as well um and and we also have these special uh shows that we call spotlight episodes around uh we actually did a really and this is actually one of my favorite episodes that we've done is around presence and how why is presence important how do you use it you know what what does it matter whether I'm in the house or I'm in a specific room or my partner's in the house or in a specific room or what have you. So um, we, we really g- try and go in depth into those, kind of, uh, in, into those kind of topics as well.
1: Well, that's outstanding. And we'll have a link to haspodcast.io in the show notes. You can check that out. Check out Phil and Rohan. Rohan, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. We really appreciate getting your insight. We'll get you back on the show real soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we appreciate it, Rohan. Uh, With a couple minutes left in the hour, we're going to go to feedback. And um, today, it is Mohan who writes in. Mohan says, Hi Noah, love your show. I just got done listening to episode 154, and your talk on Brave gave me a new point of how to look at the browser. The reason I don't use it much is I would like to support my favorite websites without being tracked. However, I'm not a fan of BAT, nor am I a fan of how strict it is with blocking ads. Instead, I like to use uBlock Origin and I use easy privacy. I do that on Firefox and I've noticed a huge change in the ads I get served. No more do I get ads for something I search on Amazon, and also it helped me when using container tabs in Firefox in conjunction in conjunction with uBlock origin. That being said, I just wanted you to to take a look at how Vivaldi did their Android browser. If you've not already, they go into detail here, and he gives the link to Vivaldi.com, the blog post, on the Vivaldi browser on Android Private. They essentially rebuilt the browser from the ground up, and even the Blink Engine, to make sure that no Google stuff is in it and make it Private. They also incorporated DuckDuckGo's privacy tool, but you can switch to easy privacy, which I did. Love using it on my freshly flashed Lineage OS Nexus 9. Thanks for the show and have a great day. Well, thanks for writing in. We appreciate having you. We appreciate everybody that took the time to join us on this special edition episode and helped us test the infrastructure for Southeast Linux Fest. Again, a huge thank you to Rohan Carmendi for coming on the show and digging into Home Assistant. Hopefully you picked up some new tips. I know I did. We'll be back next Tuesday with our show at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. And if you want replays of the show, if you want replays of the show or you want to access the show notes, you can find those at Podcast.AskNoahShow.com. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com.